Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, we are back. Uh, it is another uh, another week in the life of podcasting in what is still basically the pandemic. Um, <laughs> I can't believe we've been doing this for so long now, Kira. Is it? I, we we haven't quite gotten to our two year yet, have we? I think we have actually. Have we? Because we started recording. Oh, that's true. Before the pandemic before the actually pandemic. kicked in. <laughs> <laughs> so it we feels have. like it was at that same moment. Um, yeah. But, yeah, uh, wow. Well, happy two-year anniversary. Indeed. And to you. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah. It's been, been good. A, quite an interesting. I, but yeah, I do feel like we're in a new, I guess there's no post really. We won't say and it's not ever over, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, even... yeah, I guess that's an interesting debate, right? Like, yes. I can see how it feels good to be able to say that something is sort of over, but yeah. then it does imply a sense of reverting back, which we know we don't want to do. Yep. Not only that, but of course, it also, you know, like cases are up in many countries. Yeah. Or, sorry, in many countries and many states. Yep. Like it's not, we're, we're not sure where we are, but yes, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it's just that at this point, two years after the change began. <laughs> yes, that's right. And I do think it's I sort like of that. been folded in now. I mean, in the sense of it's going to be an ongoing thing, but we now have systems and vaccines and protocols and it's part of like, I don't know. We can do it's a part of life. I, I think yeah. maybe, I mean, I don't mean to, I don't want to say it's like the flu, but in some ways it is becoming more like that, right? Like if you, people will be continue to vaccinate against the flu and you know, whatever I, that will, I, but it will still, I mean, but it's still a threat to certain populations and it's still a thing. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I have to say my partner, um, just had his birthday a few weeks ago. And one of the things that he said would make him feel like the pandemic was over was going to um, a dance club and dancing with lots of people. And we did that for his birthday. And it did feel like, I, I mean, there were still some people wearing masks, but it was this wonderful, um, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Because of course I was experiencing still all of this like strange discomfort associated with being in a room yeah. full of like sweaty bodies dancing you know to disco music and it was like wonderful and also really <laughs> like just uh surreal to be back in that environment um but uh, but we did it so according to his his sort of um you know emotional landscape he's feeling more like we have gotten through the the two years of yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's great. I love that. I'm so glad you guys did that. It makes me happy. <laughs> I just got chills thinking about, I mean, that just sounds fantastic. Um, oh, so fun. I do it think, so well, and I don't, I don't feel like I, I do feel angst when I'm in some of those settings myself, but then, but when I see groups of people, particularly like even outside, like recently my alma mater won the Kansas, uh, the, uh, national, a basketball championship and there were 70,000 people in my hometown out on the streets 
Wow. And I was like, I so wanted to be there. And I so loved seeing the throngs of people and not feeling like, yikes. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was I know. interesting. It is. It's totally interesting. It's totally interesting. And it's still, I know everybody's kind of following things at their own pace and changing or not changing. I'm, I, I had a dream the other night about going back into an office. Um, and, uh, and, and I woke up realizing like, oh, I do have some, some sort of, I have FOMO or like a, a sense of, of missing that type of thing where you walk into the office at the beginning of the day and you see yeah. somebody and you say like, Hey, what's going on? What are you doing after work? And like all these things, I, I, I miss that sitting here in my living room for the, or sorry, well, bedroom actually, you know, for the foreseeable future. It's really like a, yeah. Uh, oh, <laughs> I guess I'm going to start missing that more that everybody's going back to it. I've been yep. thinking about that with some of the moves, you know, like I, I know a lot of people actually who are moving right now um, mm -hmm. to new places. And in part, that seems, I think we maybe thought that would have just happened in a big old wave. And after the first six months, when employers started saying, you can live wherever you want to, we're not going to make you come back. Um, but for a lot of people, that decision has taken longer, you know, yeah. like, oh, well, okay, maybe, or, or maybe they moved out of a city and then realized that they missed cities and were yep. moving back, you know, in yep. some cases, that's, I know some people who are, who are doing that, where they moved to like a, a small town, loved it, wanted to be around family, were dealing with childcare stuff. And now they're like, okay, I, know, <laughs> I miss my, my city stuff. I'm yes. ready to, to go back and, um. Yeah, so it's just interesting to know that this, these shifts are still really up, um, happening a lot, you know, it's, it's not, yep. uh, it wasn't a, a single moment. Yeah, definitely. It is interesting. I mean, there's just a lot of interesting things happening with this shift, of course. Um, and I, part of it, like, for a while, so many things, you know, all these events, like a book event or whatever, would all be virtual. And so you could participate in things that were happening basically everywhere and now that's shifting back and I the FOMO for me about events that I can't go to because they're just not geographically possible is through the roof I'm, I'm like mm -hmm. crazed about it a little bit I'm like oh my gosh I have to be but I mean that's where I was before I don't know why I would suddenly feel that I need to be all over the country <laughs> attending various things um, it's just different because for a while it was all just at our fingertips um, mm -hmm. which is a very mm -hmm. interesting yeah, totally. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting time. And it's springtime. So it feels kind of like, I don't know, um, late spring. It's like you're, you're, there's a lot of reemergence going on. Um, mm -hmm. I'm excited to see where it, uh, where it takes people. Indeed, indeed. Well, Lindsay, our guest today also can talk to us a little bit about um, what it's like to um, make a move in these times, because that's a part of what her current moment is like as well. We are so pleased to have Artie Gouda with us today. Artie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. We are thrilled to have you. I'm going to give a quick intro and then we'll jump right into some questions. Um, RT leads uh, ZGF's East Coast Sustainability Practice and is a firm-wide resource for the project performance team, which oversees the firm's sustainability practice in master planning, architecture, and interiors. She's an advocate for collective climate action, 
and she's the current co-chair of US Architects Declare. And she's also a member of the American Institute of Architects Committee on the Environment Leadership Group, um, where I also serve. And um, I actually met Artie through uh, the Women in Sustainability Leadership Group. This is a recognition program that has become sort of a community of sorts. And so I'm thrilled to have you with us today. And to get us started, I hope that you can tell us a little bit about how and why you got interested in and involved in architecture and sustainability. Give us a little bit about your path, please. Uh, the origin story is always uh, very fun to see, you know, the roots of the tree, so to speak. And um, well, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania outside of Pittsburgh. And uh, so like many children from that geographic location, I saw falling water as a kid. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's amazing masterpiece. And it really inspired me. It's kind of a machine. For those of you who haven't seen it in person, I encourage you all to go see it. Um, but something very machined in a sense, um, new technology, uh, tensioning of the cantilevers, and uh, very seated in nature. It, it appears like the river is running through the building itself. Um, but I also grew up uh, as part of the Indian diaspora and spending summers in India. Um, and I had uh, parents that would take me on things like, I think jokingly as adults called the museum death march um, or the temple death march and kind of going through uh, cultural blitzes. And so I would see on these summer vacations, um, very historic temples like Baylor and Holly Bait in, in Southern India, um, using, I would say craftsmanship and technology that doesn't exist anymore. And I think most notably, perhaps the impacts of invasion, colonialism, um, where those buildings were damaged and how subsequent interventions couldn't match the skills of the local craftsmen. Um, and so both of the, those things were a kind of reality for me, but I wasn't exposed to architecture. My parents did not have that. Um, and uh, it was something that was really a process. And uh, I think my mother really helped guide me through that and think about what was possible, talk to other architects. So I was, I was very lucky um, in that. She kind of helped me match what I was interested in uh, with the profession. And I, of course, am no longer a traditional architect, as I would say. I was very mission-based. I was the kid that was in Amnesty International and Earth Club in junior high. So uh, traditional architecture, I think, turned into sustainable design and really thinking about that mission-based aspect, but how buildings can really inspire people. And certainly they can. Uh, we see that from the consumption of design, you know, from the phones to people who really don't understand everything that goes into a building, but um, they go into a building and they feel that they want to be there. Absolutely. What an interesting mix of influences and impressions growing up. I love that. Um, and I know that you recently went through a search for a new firm and a new role. I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about what you sort of observed about the profession during that search. This is a really interesting time to try to make a, a shift as the, in the way that you have. 
It certainly is. And, um, you know, I was very lucky to work for a long time at um, SOM, which is a internationally recognized firm, architecture and engineering firm. Um, that was important to me too. When I first came to Chicago, my dad uh, was an engineer. Um, and during this time, I would say, we're all thinking about the pandemic priorities. And so one of the reasons I did wanna shift was um, to be closer to my family and um, a lot of friends that I grew up with on the East Coast. Uh, I was a little bit rebellious after school, I would say. So I spent 20 years in a different geography deliberately. And so very happy to be in Chicago, learn from the story practice. But um, as I started getting more ambitious around sustainability, really thinking about where we can influence more. And uh, Kira is really kind into the introduction to talk about some of my advocacy work. And um, that was a big influence in why I picked Washington DC and, and why I picked CGF. And um, of course, I've been very lucky in my career to be surrounded by people who deeply care about sustainability. And I think even when it wasn't popular, I would say, so SOM always supported a, a group of sustainability specialists. And uh, so that was number one, you know, what are the firms that are supporting this and understand that it's actually a discipline? Um, and not everyone can, or not everyone is doing it at scale. Um, and NZGF has had a long history of having a group as well. But I think the other thing too, and we're all seeing this in architecture, is really um, the impact of diversity, women in leadership, and um, talent retention. So everyone is struggling with this. Uh, I think we can all agree creatives are underpaid and inflation is outpacing keeping the lights on. And, um, you know, I would say promoting salary compensation. And I think that's beyond any one firm. It's something everyone's struggling with right now. So I really did take a lens at that. I looked at what leadership looked like in all the firms I was talking to, um, what techniques they were using to amplify um, the change that we're all talking about, but um, it's not gonna happen passively. And then I thought pretty deeply about what the firms were doing for young people. So uh, again, we're only as good as the people in any organization we work in, especially in the large firms. And uh, you know, as a, as a teacher, I can see how much financial pressure students have um, in a way that I didn't have 20 years ago. And so we really do have to think about that as we bring people to the market, mentor them, um, and make sure that they can be successful and they're part of the, su the success of any practice that we're working in. I'm really fascinated by this, Archie, about the notion of what younger professionals need or sort of what it's almost sort of generational I think in some ways at least from what I'm hearing you talk about it's it's the it's the things that we are concerned about as a society and a culture today um I, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about it like what do you think what do you think uh, architecture firms or AEC firms should start to look like or how do they change what is what is that what is that um uh, future uh, feel like to you? 
Well, I think we are a cultured, we're institutionalized, and this goes beyond architecture and design to believe in grind culture. And so um, there's a limit to that. There's a limit to that in creativity uh, and certainly in what you can produce. And if you look at the live, I think there was this exhibition many years ago and it was as a wonk, a wonk adjacent person, um, it was almost a bar chart. And it said like the time of day that all these uh, amazingly creative people spent doing different things. Um, and world-renowned artists, they are not working more than six, seven hours a day. Maybe they're working four hours a day. And I think that's something that we've lost in, in terms of the well, the amount of production we're making. And, and we're all thinking about that. And uh, certainly young professionals and students are thinking about that versus the cost of living, affordability of housing. Um, and so as guiders, within the profession, we should steer away. I, I strongly believe we should steer away from that grind culture, value our creativity, and understand that replenishing the well is gonna result in a much more creative, communal, um, and participatory practice, uh, placemaking really. And it is tough because there's more and more pressure. So there's a very deep, deep tension uh, around deadlines production, um, and then competition amongst firms to do that. So uh, we are seeing the start of a union movement in architecture. And I think that might be one of the most important things. Um, you know, I think some professors recently at SciArc got in hot water for talking about essentially grind culture in a uh, you know, in an institution that has historically been known for being leading edge. And so I think it's very interesting to see that um, to perpetuate grind culture is not leading edge. And certainly ZGF as a West Coast based practice has been thinking about that for a long time. And it was certainly an attractor for me. I love this. And also, yes, it's funny just to hear you mention that West Coast reference. I do think there's something out here. I, I have forgotten uh, that moving out um, changed the tone of that a little bit. And I'm glad to hear that ZGF is bringing it to the East Coast and, uh, and that you are as well. Um, yeah, I, and, and I'm glad that you brought up organizing, labor organizing in unions, um, something that I hope we can talk about a little bit more on the podcast in the future, but it's um, it's been a really exciting new wave of energy that I think folks are rightfully bringing to the practice. It's there's a lot there. Um, well, thank you for for um, those thoughts. I hope that inspires some of you all that may be having these deeper considerations about your careers. I feel like there's a lot of that going on right now. I mean, we certainly know that there's um, that happening at a societal level, and then so impressed with how you've been thinking about it and navigating those questions, RT. Um, so we want to talk a little bit more um, about uh, your work life now. And we wanted to start with this question about um, what you're most proud of accomplishing so far in, in your work uh, landscape. What, what stories would you like to tell? Well, you know, my mom says sometimes that you were born under a lucky star. And I think sometimes 
you don't always feel that in the moment, but um, it's very interesting. I think in this moment of pivot and reflection that I certainly do feel very lucky. Um, and even this question, because each year appears to top the last. And I think part of that is really the domino effect we're seeing in sustainability now. Um, and I think about some of my older mentors that were, um, you know, working in the 70s and 80s and Passive House and the PVs were coming off the White House. So they had a very different, um, I would say, struggle. And so uh, it's, it's a totally different world right now. Uh, I think mentorship is an obvious accomplishment or feeling that people I've worked with that have moved on from where I've worked have felt free to reach out to me. Um, and then hearing from my students who are constantly centering sustainability in their work, uh, whether it's through practices in real estate or traditional design, engineering or consultancies. Um, I think just speaking of each year topping the last this year, um, very fortunate to be selected to give the inaugural commencement speech at UIUC. So now they have a sustainable design track, a new degree program at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Uh, a small class, but I can imagine every year it's gonna grow and grow. Uh, interdisciplinary design focused on sustainability. So to me, it's an honor to do something like that. And um, also just so optimistic to see and perhaps meet some of those students uh, in a month. And, um, what else? I think there's probably one other thing recently. And as I'm starting a new chapter, I would say I'm not ever going to say I'm closing the chapter on Chicago because I love it so much. But um, I was selected by New City Magazine uh, as one of the 50 designers in the city uh, amongst incredible company. And for those of you who know Chicago, it is uh, a very, very strong design community. Um, and I attribute this to the fact that the cost of living is low. And so you have, you know, from graffiti artists to very highbrow artists starting here, uh, it's like a, a seed program that then perhaps moves to the coast or moves around the world. And so a uh, very humbling experience to receive that recognition in a city of broad shoulders. Ah. That's so cool. <laughs> um, thank you for that. And um, and I love this point too, just about what it means to be in Chicago and the community there and how that how that has evolved. That's super cool. Um, well, tell us um, a little bit about the work that you're doing right now. Is there a project that you are working on that you want our listeners to know about? Well, there are many projects as you can imagine at ZGF uh, that are incredible and that was one of the big attractions um you know i think one of the new project architects i was talking to said well i really want to get into sustainability i'm working on a platinum project and i just want to do more and vgf is just filled with people like that <laughs> uh so it, it's totally wonderful there's a great client base there but um one project that's really got the office and then even the broader project performance team excited is uh, a conversion of a historic Best Buy in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, it's an adaptive reuse. It's a historic Hardy Holzman Pfeiffer building. Uh, 
uh, very interesting postmodern triangle bars, almost looks like an obelisque at one point. So it has this uh, DC vibe going on. It's a huge design challenge, but the client is enlightened. The client is thinking about living building the cost of that and then how to get that into the pro forma. And to me, that's really exciting because we always have aspirations, huge aspirations as architects. And there has to be an alignment with the budget and the client that also has that vision to do something that other people aren't doing. Um, and when I think about, even as both of you were talking in the intro, the movement of people, people trying to find affordability, family, work-life balance, um, you know, these near suburbs, very close or smaller cities, uh, there's so much building stock that we're abandoning. Uh, forget about the 100-year-old train station or the absolutely gorgeous thing that, of course, we're going to preserve, but still has a huge financial hurdle. Uh, something like this project, uh, remaking it into office space is a real incredible opportunity. Um, yeah, and it is something new. And I think architects are always thinking about newness. We're always thinking about what's now. So interestingly enough, uh, this strange building with an amazing client has everyone excited. I love that. I'm such a fan of that um, not very popular building type. <laughs> I think, I, think um, I, I guess, I don't know what you would call that, sort of unsexy reuse. Um, adaptive reuse is so hugely important. And I'm, you know, we're seeing, we're starting to see in the profession more attention to that from developers like your client that you're describing. Um, and it's terrific to see uh, all the creativity and excitement being brought to bear on those projects. I'm just, I could not be more delighted about that. It's, I have, you know, there have been some over the years, even occasionally winning awards and whatnot but it is such a people are so it is just not what we think of what we what seems like a fun project right like it doesn't it isn't um it doesn't really meet some of those sort of normal um thresholds but it's it could not be more important from a, replic a replicability standpoint like you said about i mean there are so many communities that have that kind of building stock. And we need to be showing how, um, you know, demonstrating how to how to reuse those in a variety of ways, um, which can be really interesting um, visually and bring street life and all kinds of things, but also be preserving the, the fabric. Um, so many exciting things about that. I, I just love it. And I, I especially love that it's really going for you know, a very high standard. Um, and I can't wait to learn more about it um, and see, you know, how particularly how living building is integrated into the pro forma. That as a, as a topic for development replicability is just huge. Okay, sorry, fangirling just a little bit. Um, <laughs> I just really do love that. Thank you so much for it's it's just refreshing, I think, to hear about, you know, most people want to talk about the most sculptural project that they've touched. Um, but that's that's really not where we are right now in this in this place. Um, okay, so but that's actually a perfect way to segue a little bit to um, 
we like to talk about, um, you know, there's the, the green building industry uh, is sometimes thought of as a movement. And so we, we always like to ask our guests how they feel about those two ideas. Like, do you feel like you're part of an industry or part of a movement? And, and how, do you, how do you think about that for yourself? I definitely think about movement culture a lot. Um, direct action and also how to make, and I've been jokingly call it, calling it the green Marines. And it's not just super specialists that have knowledge and hold that knowledge. It's kind of democratic open sourcing of that. Um, and thinking about within a practice or even beyond your practice, how do you get advocates? Um, and so that can activate beyond your firm's sphere of influence to your students and advocacy work. Um, and, and what I've found too in that is, I mean, the work, many people have talked about this with you and in the sustainability movement that there are moments of frustration. And so having that movement culture is very helpful to be able to talk to others that are in that situation. How do we problem solve and group think? Um, and then also to recognize in movement culture that it takes a very small percentage of the population, probably less than 5% has been documented to make absolutely astonishing change. And so I've seen that in firm culture. Um, I see that in ZGF that there's a core team of sustainability specialists and uh, a much broader team, close to 200 people that I would say are very strong advocates in the firm. Um, and so you need that movement. You need every aspect of your business, your culture, your practice um, to amplify sustainability to be successful. I was even joking too at uh, AIA, American Institute of Architects. I've been working in Chicago and they're advocacy committee and as we have this decision-making matrix of issues around whether it's preservation, um, EDI or sustainability, how do we make decisions and you know the decision matrix is really asking the question do you have issues, do you got issues and um, I think that's part of this in the movement culture is you don't hide the issues under a rock, you try to daylight them and problem solve them together. Yeah, I love that. Um, that. And that to me is such an interesting thing right now, like being able to unsilo those and talk about them at the same time, right? As in a more sort of systems thinking way, rather than, um, yes, we're focused on equity right now. Okay. And then, but tomorrow we're going to talk about sustainability. I love, I mean, I like this notion that we can like separate these things as, you know, distinct from one another. It just seems, um, a little odd to me. Um, okay, well, and I, I really like this idea of, you know, movement culture and what that does. And I certainly agree with the need for the movement part of the feeling of the movement because it helps us. It is, it is like a huge um, group of, you know, comrades we're together when we're facing that frustration and all of those things. So speaking of that frustration, <laughs> um, I'm wondering where you thought we might be by the 2020s now that we're firmly in that decade. <laughs> well, I, I know that we all 
wish we were further along um, within the movement, but when I think about this question, I think we are further along than I thought we would be. And uh, I am an optimistic pessimist, I would say. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a straight optimist. I, I try to be critical about why we're failing, um, just like many people are in the movement. And, um, you know, I think the financial dominoes are tipping. So that is huge. Uh, of course, the financial hedging is within the system that's designed to hedge until the very last minute. Uh, so that, that hedging until the last minute is almost playing with doomsday. I, I think that's where the pessimism comes in. Um, I would say too, I, I spent some time in coursework at university uh, studying colonialism, uh, studying the concept of minorities, even though we are the majority. So, you know, I'm moving to a majority majority city is what I always say. I'm not going to a majority minority city. And I think that breaking after growing up and thinking about decolonization, uh, probably since I read Rudyard Kipling is so overdue and I'm so happy to see that. Um, I know many people are talking about that now, but for people who are thinking about that for a long time, it has been a point of complete frustration that it was not synced uh, with our thoughts on sustainability. Um, but to me, that's a huge amount of progress. Much more has to be done. It cannot be done passively. It has to be done actively. And to me, that's the key to all of this because as environmentalists, it's the not in my backyard that has driven so much of our resource extraction, biodiversity and human capital extraction. And so as long as we can turn a blind eye to that, um, these kind of non-progressive policies have proliferated and that's starting to change. I think a spotlight is coming on that. And as we hit these limits of growth, uh, there is no more someone else's backyard. And so we start to understand a little bit more uh, what those of us who are less unfortunate were struggling through for a very, very long time. So I think that that empathetic piece that's coming to the forefront now is huge. And for those of us who have some political power, some uh, would say institutional capacity, need to do everything we can to amplify that voice wherever we find it. Uh, I love this so much, Arthi. Thank you. Because I, I think it really does. Um, I, I, I'm hopeful that uh, people are starting to make those connections as well. It does feel like we're at a turning point um, and that it enables those of us that work on the built world to uh, to sort of remove some of the constraints that we've had about the kinds of levers we should be thinking about and changing, um, you know, the built world, but also participating in, in, in the larger systems that we are a part of. Then um, it's, it's, uh, I don't know, I, th I think we could go into a lot of detail about that. And some of the, some of the ways that we've gone down the road of um, needing our movement of improving buildings to make people money. <laughs> I'm still sort of uh, struggling to 
overcome that barrier in the work that we do is to emphasize that, um, you know, capitalism is not a necessary constraint of saving the world. Uh, so anyway. Oh, yes. That's, that's where there. we channel channel our inner five-year-olds that say, yeah. why is there a homeless person? Why is, why is this happening and not happening? And somehow yeah. it, it changes over time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, but I, I, I see that same shift and I think it's exciting. Um, so I wanna ask you, maybe this is a slightly wonkier question, but I, but I trust that it is as profound an answer as you have given us. Um, what do you see the major progress areas in the world of sustainability and buildings today as being where are the, the areas that we've done well and where are the areas that we haven't done as well? How would you characterize that from your stance? I think what we're doing well is we're amplifying the good that we see. And, you know, designers have always been optimists. I said I was a pessimistic optimist. Uh, but sometimes when I see uh, the way designers around me, and I've been lucky, I've surrounded myself with very creative people, but I would say drawing, rendering, thinking about a post-apocalyptic future that's incredibly optimistic, and we were not trained as sci-fi writers. <laughs> I, I think that's something really very good and extremely, extremely powerful. Um, because people are scared right now. And so we need to think about an optimistic future, project one and make those lightning rods that people can gather around. And um, I would say make momentum because there are a lot of hard decisions we're gonna have to make. And we're not very good right now at flexing collective civic good. And I think that's, that's the part that gets the what I think we can do better, it's the collective civic good. Because all of these things that we're talking about, uh, we can be more active in that optimistic future if we really think about collective action and for a long time, and it is the way the capital markets work, uh, we are competing against each other as designers, um, as a sustainable practitioner, in some ways, I've floated above that, but that's a luxury that I've carved for myself. And I, I can see people who are more traditional practice bearing the burden of that pressure, you know, keep the lights on, make sure everyone's employed. Um, these things are not going away, but we do need to get beyond that and think about how we collectively work together. And we have been trained since we were little to think about those concepts, manifest destiny, bootstraps, uh, you can do it on your own. Uh, if you're not successful, financially successful, you're lazy. Um, and that has to change. I think it certainly has to change in creative cultures. And it simply is not true as we're seeing now, I think with the pressure that people face uh, and certainly in their personal lives, if there's a setback that could set your entire career back. and. So that's why I said earlier, as we were talking, that I have been very lucky because some of the things that I've been very successful at have been predicated on being surrounded by people who have amplified me, a good family, you know, opportunity of good education and good health. Uh, these are all foundational pieces and we have to get better about talking about that because that is the only thing that's going to let us get to these goals that we are all 
aggressively talking about and really want to realize in the built environment. Mm, yeah, there's there's so much there, and I I want to just um, mention I don't uh, this book that I read at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, somewhat seductively titled "How to Do Nothing," that uh, reminds me a lot of some of the things that you're talking about, RT, in particular around sort of these uh, myths of of um, you know Protestant work ethic and the notion that we all kind of need to continue to stay busy in order to play our part in, in the society. And um, if, if, if you, I don't know if you've read this book, but it totally resonates with a lot of the points that the author makes. She talks a lot about sort of, how do we find ourselves in collective action communities? How do we find ourselves doing creative work? Uh, and in some ways it's by releasing from the, the, the structures and things we were taught. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's a, I, I, I uh, I think there's a, so much more there, and um, and and speaking of that, I our last question for you is um, maybe even along these lines of of who you're most inspired by. I wonder, it's almost an augmented question here for you, Artsy, which is like if you know people are interested or peaked have have their interest peaked by some of the things you've been talking about, where might they go to dive further into it, or how where have you found lessons and um, and uh, reflections that have been helpful for you, but it can just be the simple question: Who are you most inspired by these days? No pressure. Whatever you, whatever you can give us, we'll take it. <laughs> sure, and you know, I think inspiration comes from many directions. Um, it's also just getting outside, going for a walk. But I think, in terms of people, I I stop trying to. CFI leaders, so to speak, and look for co-creationists, the he for she's and they them, um, because those gentlemen are spectacular. Um, young people who listen to wisdom and at the same time, they're still pushing hard and challenging all of us to fight for what we believe in. And then I would say as someone who's in my middle years looking for gray hairs that are trying to keep the lights on so that pressure is real but um, I would say that they're also entertaining all the pushback from the middle swath and the young guns so they're really looking to transform things and uh, in eastern eastern practice that's almost as you get to the end of your life you've accumulated everything you want and you're you're letting go and and I would say getting into a meditative state and so finding those people who are at that point where all they want to do is go do good is really critical. Um, you know, a lot about the things that I talked about and inspired me that I talked about today um, didn't come from the lens of design or even sustainability. They came from the lens of trailblazers and, and civil and feminist rights. And I think there's so much that we can learn from there in the environmental movement. And so when I think of people who inspire me that have stood the test of time, they're not always architects, they're Angela Davis, they're James Baldwin, R.N.W. Roy, Rebecca Solnit, Audre Lorde, the list goes on and on, but um, they can really teach us about fortitude, uh, their commitment to leading by their convictions. And 
they, in a sense, were amplifying what a lot of other people were thinking, but perhaps didn't have the microphone to say. And that's a lot about what some of us have had the opportunity to do in this movement is we're amplifying what a lot of other people are thinking at the same time and trying to access how their work, their personal life can affect better, bigger, massive change. I love this. Thank you. It's it's really, um, I love the way that you are drawing attention to, I don't know, getting out of the architecture and design world to find inspiration. I, I think uh, I, I get a lot of inspiration from some of those same people and it's, it's, um, it's always interesting, right, to sort of take yourself out of the professional context and then suddenly find yourself reading something and finding so much relevance uh, to the work that you do, thinking that it's somehow going to be different, but it's all very interconnected. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you for being with us on the podcast. It's been so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much, Lindsay and Kira. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and I look forward to binging all the episodes that I've only <laughs> listened to part of the podcast. But uh, speaking of inspiration, for those of you out there, uh, certainly a cast of visitors to the podcast are truly a fountain of knowledge and very, very inspirational how they've navigated different channels to make very big change. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we... We really enjoy it. It's interesting too. I was thinking about how we we have sometimes thought about having guests outside of our profession, you know, and it's it's a uh, in part because of what you're saying, finding these inspirations from people who are in uh, different movements or different struggles, different communities, and uh, and so far we've just found so many people who are doing that work at that intersection that we haven't really managed yet to really um, go outside of our, our, yeah. our little community. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it's just so wonderful. The group of people that we have access to right here in our world has been, has been such a delight. Um, and as always a delight, Kira, to be with you and to get to bring uh, these voices into the dialogue, so. Likewise, Lindsay, it's a pleasure. What a great conversation today, Artie. Thank you so much. That is it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.